Well, this morning, uh, guests, uh, we'll just kind of catch you up. We've been working our way through the letter of 1 Corinthians, and uh, if you haven't been with us in a week or two, we're, we're now in chapter 13. And so today we're zeroing in on the heart of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, but the, the, we covered the whole chapter uh, this past Sunday. And so while 13 comes sort of toward the end of this letter, it is, in a real sense, kind of the thematic center of 1 Corinthians. And so it's, the, it's sort of the sun to the solar system of 1 Corinthians. And if that's true, then verses 4 to 7, where we're giving our attention today, is like the blazing hot core of the sun. I mean, this is the, this is the real essence of this chapter in this critical place of this letter. And so these verses are probably the most eloquent and profound and powerful words ever written on the subject of love. I'm not, I don't think that's an overstatement. Uh, one, one commentator said, to comment on its parts is like giving a botany lecture on a beautiful flower. Uh, if you're not careful, you lose the beauty and the impact of it. And so we, we don't want to be guilty of that today, but we are kind of slowing down, not to, not to give a botany lecture, but to but to look closely at this, this beautiful, powerful statement on love today. And so that's what we're going to see. Let's, would you read with me in verses, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May the Lord bless His Word as we look at it together now. Well, unless you are living completely off the grid... And if you're live streaming, you can't claim that to be doing that uh, because you're clearly on Facebook. But, but you, you probably have some sort of computer or smartphone or tablet or some device like that that occasionally gets those annoying pop-ups. You know the pop-up? It's not occasionally. Frequently gets those annoying pop-ups. And, and when I get those, some of them are more frightening than others. Um, I, I just a couple weeks ago, I was updating the, some, of, some uh, of the programs on my laptop and some of the apps that had the little number by them that I ignored long, so long and so long, and they just kept getting higher and higher. These need updates. These need updates. So I finally took the time to update these programs, and as soon as I did, there was a pop-up, and the pop-up was the kind that scares me. And it was said, like, you, 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 can't, uh, you can't update this program because you need, to, you need the most current operating system or something like that. I'm like, I didn't know I didn't have the current operating system. Turns out it's months old, but I'm, I got left behind. And, and, so, and then I get a little panicky because I think this little quick and simple update of a few programs now becomes long and complicated. And, something's, and I have to learn new stuff. And I, I don't know. I'm an old man now. I realize that. But... But this is what happens. If you don't, up, if you don't um, update the operating system and get the newest operating system, then the apps can't be updated. And eventually the computer is going to kind of slow down. It's going to start kind of causing problems. You're gonna, you, can't in, you can't install new programs. I mean, you can buy this you know, $1,000 high-powered, super-duper 
program, Bible software, whatever it is, and there's some big ones out there, and they're expensive. You can do that, and you can spend all that money, but if you don't have the necessary operating system, it won't run, or it won't run well, and, 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 you, and it's worthless. And so I thought about that dilemma as an illustration of what was happening here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The, the, the Corinthians, they had gifts. They had powerful, wonderful, high-powered gifts. Just wonderful gifts. And, and, and so, but without, what Paul's saying here is without the operating system of love, those, those, without that installed in their lives and in their church, those gifts, they'll, they'll malfunction. They'll create problems. They're not going to run properly. The fault is not with the gifts, we've said. There's no problem with the gifts. The fault's in them. And so they haven't downloaded the, the, quote, more excellent way that Paul talks about as he introduces this chapter. And so my point is simply that all the, the now just say, don't squeeze too much out of that illustration. Don't, it, it will crumble under, under the weight of any kind of scrutiny. So love isn't a download or something like that. But my point is simply that, that all of the wonderful gifts that this church had, it could not run properly without love. They can't. They, they were bogged down by division. They were, their gatherings were malfunctioning. They, 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 uh, there was all kinds of disorder in the assembly. So Paul anchors his whole discussion on gifts here and their use in the assembly in love. In love. Love, we said, is, it's a far, far, far more excellent way. That's his point here. And we saw last week, because love's, love is greater than the gifts, in verses 1 to 3, Love is more powerful than the gifts, which we're going to look again today. And love lasts longer. It lasts forever. It lasts longer than the gifts. And that's how he ends this chapter. We looked at all that last week, kind of coming back to the, to the heart of that and zeroing in on verses 4 to 7, this description of love, several of love's powerful aspects here that he lays out for us in rapid-fire fa fashion in what we just read. Now listen, Paul's not attempting to write everything that could be said or needs to be said about love here. That's not his point. He's not trying to write this definitive, once-for-all description of love. This is everything that could or needs to be said about love. No, what he says here is actually very situational. He's, he's writing, it's an explanation that's tailor-made for this Corinthian church at this particular time and place and what they're going through. Now that said, it's universally applicable to God's people everywhere at all time, including us sitting right here. But I just say that because more could be said about love. I mean, there's, there's much more that could be said. But Paul's dealing with directly with many of the problems in the church there at that time. And we see these connections as we've consi just consider what we've looked at if you've been with us through this study and all of the things we've seen already in the first 13 chapters of this letter, when he says love is patient, you think about this Corinthians. They won't even wait on others to eat when they get together for their fellowship meals. Some are gorging themselves and, and leaving others without food. Uh, we saw this in chapter 11. Love doesn't envy. But it, we saw earlier in the letter, chapter 3, verse 3, that the Corinthians, they were eaten up with, quote, jealousy and strife. Love doesn't boast, but the Corinthians were habitual boasters. You see it in chapter 4, verse 7, 5, 6. You, you love isn't arrogant, but the Corinthians, they gave room for arrogance to flourish in the assembly. 
Love doesn't seek its own, but the Corinthians were intoxicated with all things self. I mean, so each one of these points, we can look back and, and particular verses and say, okay, yes, this is where we see this already in this letter. Now Paul's saying, this is the, that's the exact opposite of love. And so we could, we could go on and on with all 15 of those as- aspects, but let's not deceive ourselves, brothers and sisters. When I say it's, it's written for their situation, don't... Don't think that this list doesn't align with so many of our problems in our relationships. And I think that's going to be evident that we'll see. They, they are representative, this church, and their problems are representative of our own church and our own challenges and the way we relate to one another. I think that will be abundantly clear. So we're just going to walk through these 15 aspects of love. Then we're going to come and eat and drink at the table and rejoice together in this greatest demonstration of love that we have in Christ. So let's, let's see these together. First thing we'll say with love is patient, is that love waits. Love waits. I mean, it's not, this isn't to say love is patient. It's not just like waiting, at the, waiting patiently at the DMV or at the light at the grocery store or something like that. But love, what he's saying is love is patient. It's patient towards those who hurt us, who wrong us, who, who sin against us, who disappoint us, just even those who irritate us and frustrate us. The the Greek word here comes from two words. It, it, it literally means that love suffers long. It suffers long. So to be patient in this way, it's, it's, to, it's, it's to be slow to react, to, to resist that impulse to, to retaliate when wrong, to, to stick it out, to keep going with difficult people. That's what he's saying when he says love is patient. Love waits. It suffers long. It doesn't start the clock as soon as the mistake is made or as soon as we're wrong and we're just like counting down to the second and waiting for the moment to pounce on them and, 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 and to, to come down hard on them. No, love it bears with the imperfections and the faults and the sins and even just the differences of other people. It suffers long. It gives people time. It's slow to take offense, slow to become frustrated, Slow to vent anger. And, and this patient love, what do we, you see patience, it, is, it relates to time. Patient love, it's rooted in our understanding that, that time is God's good gift to us. That's what it's rooted in, and that, that He's sovereign over time and timing. Because, but what do we want to do? We want, our clocks matter most to us. We wear our watches, or we have our smartphones, and we're looking and, and not literally maybe, but we have this t- sense of timing in our minds, in our hearts, and we expect everything and everyone else to fit and adjust to our sense of timing. And the Lord says, trust my time. That's what patient love is. It trusts God's timing. Now, patience, patient love, it's most supremely seen, we know, in the person and the character of God himself, isn't it? We see it in his dealings throughout the Old Testament with his people, think of the, with the God's people in Moses' day, or think of his patience towards Jonah, this reluctant prophet. We've seen in the New Testament, just his dealings with the disciples and all of their problems and challenges and bickering, and he's so patient with them. We see it in Paul. Paul describes Christ's perfect patience displayed to him in 1 Timothy 1.16. So we see it, we see God's patience, but Listen, we, we know His patience ourselves, don't we? We know it because if we honestly think about how often we are unfaithful to the Lord and how many times we sin and 
stumble and fall, and yet how incredibly patient he is with us and continues to be. The Lord is patient. The Corinthians, not so much. <laughs> they're, they're, demon, they're, they're not demonstrating patience toward one another. They're infighting, their division. It showed very little of this suffering along with one another. They were quick to pull the trigger. And waiting, patience, patient love, it's a challenge for us, isn't it? Especially in, a, in our culture that values expediency and it values immediacy. We want it now. We, want, we have very little tolerance for waiting. We have, we, we, for suffering long with people. I mean, I, you often hear people, even Christians, say things like, I would not put up with that. <laughs> like it's a badge of honor to, to, to react immediately. But putting up with ill treatment is what patience is all about. This is love. Now, we talked about this last Sunday night, and so with each of these, I want you to think, a helpful exercise as we walk through this list is just, just try putting your name in the place of love here. So Justin is patient. That's hard to even say. Um, and my kids are probably going to throw their shoes at me as I say this in these hypothetical scenarios because they, they know their dad. Or I am patient. Is that true? Do I suffer long with people? Do you suffer long with people? Do you respond patiently to others, particularly difficult people, instead of merely reacting in thoughtless and harsh and knee-jerk sorts of ways? Love is patient. Love waits. Second, Love actively cares. Love is kind. So patience is the passive side of suffering long with someone who hurts you. But kindness, it's, it's like patience in action. It, it's demonstrating tangible love for the one who's hurt you or the one who's frustrating you, the person to whom you're most tempted to lose your patience towards. And so it's being actively interested in that person's welfare. Now, we hear the word kind. I think it's sort of a benign word in the English language. It's kind of understated. We, you know, you go to a funeral and you hear an epitaph. He, he was a very kind man. And all we mean is he, he just kind of kept to himself. He didn't rock the boat. He wasn't a total jerk. I mean, that's what we kind of think of a kind person. It's, it's sort of faint praise. Um, that's not what this word communicates. It communicates far more than that. It's very active. The, the idea of the word is helpful or useful. It's seeking out needs, looking for opportunities to meet those needs. That's, that's kindness. That's kind love. And so, and again, kindness is supremely demonstrated by the Lord Himself towards us, especially at the cross. A couple places in the New Testament, that's how Christ's saving work is, is described. It's, it's there that God shows the greatest possible kindness to those who are the most undeserving and exasperating of of recipients. Titus 3 verse 4, when the kindness of God appeared, He saved us. It's kindness. Now again, think of the Corinthians and what we know of this church. They're bickering, they're quarreling with one another, they're, they're stepping on one another to get ahead for themselves. They're clinging to their rights and their freedoms in ways that were hurting brothers and sisters and they didn't seem to care. They didn't, they, they, and so this was a rare commodity in the Corinthian fellowship. But love, love is kind. Love actively cares. Is Justin kind? Don't ask her that question. <laughs> Are you kind? 
Are you aware of people around you? Are you you looking for ways to help and care for people, even those who've hurt you? Do you empathize with those who weep and mourn and suffer? Maybe even because of their sin or because of their mistakes. Do you regularly help others in practical ways with no thought of self? You know, cook food, deliver meals, clean houses, mow yards, visit sick, make phone calls, send notes of encouragement, pray. Do you do do these things not just for, quote, your people, you know, the people who are like you or the people who like you or the people that you like, but even for those that are not? Love is kind. Third, love doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love does not envy. The, un- the unloving, the envious person is, is not thankful for the success, for the blessings of others, but, but despises them for it. Instead, it turns, kind of the, turns the focus back on himself or herself. So envy feels pain when others feel pleasure. And, and, and yet envy, envy wants to prosper at the expense of others, but love, love wants others to prosper even at our own expense. Love, love doesn't envy. And listen, this is lethal in relationships. Envy. Jealousy, it's close cousin. Jealousy, envy, it's, it's deadly in relationships, in the family, in a church. I mean, James says in James 4, 2, this is the source of so many of the quarrels and the conflicts among you. You want what others have. There's numerous, numerous examples of envy and jealousy in this letter. We can't go over them all, but there we've been seeing in chapter 12, they're envious over gifts of others. They're envious over leaders and the, the recognition they get. Our day and time as well, it's fertile soil for envy and jealousy to grow. We, 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 there are so many opportunities for us to compare ourselves to other people, to put, to, 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 to crave the attention that others get. We just think of social media and the temptations that are there for us. And so envy, we, we, we've got to be mindful of this. Love does not envy. And what's the antidote to envy? It's gratitude. It's gratitude. It's gratitude for God's blessings in our own lives, but not just that, because that still kind of puts it on us. It's gratitude for the blessings in other people's lives. It's consciously giving thanks to God for the good things that you see in others' lives, trusting and believing that in the providence and the goodness of God, He does all things well, and, and, and at just the right time and in just the right way. Justin, Justin does not envy. Do you, do you envy others? Do you find yourself comparing yourself with others and then craving what they have, at least secretly wanting, uh, secretly wanting them not to have what you don't have? That's envy. Does the success of other people feel like a threat to you at times? That's envy. Love doesn't envy. Love, fourth, love doesn't strut. It doesn't strut. It doesn't boast. This is the flip side of envy. So envy is wanting what someone else has. Boasting is trying to make others envious of what you have. Uh, Envy is my sinful response to the prosperity of others. Boasting is my sinful response to my own prosperity. And blessing. Now, again, there's numerous, numerous examples of boasting in this letter. These personality court cults that were forming around different leaders in the church. They're again, they're boasting over certain gifts, just as some were envious of others. But here, 
Love, love doesn't boast. I do not boast. <laughs> Listen, we're, we're often clever, aren't we? And kind of subtle in the ways that we boast. It's probably not, you know, just standing up and bragging always about ourselves. Just think of these. Do you, do you, do you find yourself often turning conversations into occasions to talk about yourself? You're listening to someone and all you can do is wait for a pause so you can turn it back to you and your version of that story and how you did that but also greater. Um, do, you, do you express opinions in ways that silence other people before your, quote, superior wisdom? And, and, and so you, you leave no room for disagreement or questions even because you, you kind of monopolize conversations in the way you express your opinions. Does your social media feed exist to curate this, this very positive view and image of yourself. It can be a form of boasting. Love doesn't boast. Fifth, love doesn't have a swelled head. It's not arrogant. And this is the attitude behind the boasting. So arrogance is this inflated, inflated sense of self that doesn't rightly remember that the source of every good gift is God himself. It's, it's every good ability we have. It's God who gives it. And so the arrogant person loses sight of the fact that whatever, whatever we've been given is given by God. And it's been given for a particular purpose, for the common good, as we've seen already. It's to be a blessing to others. And I would say the arrogant person doesn't remember where he stands before the Lord. That we were sinners. We're sinners who've been loved and forgiven by the Lord in spite of ourselves. I am not arrogant. Do, do we walk in, in the church, in our homes, with a kind of swagger, maybe a spiritual swagger, lacking in humility? Do we forget that everything we have, everything we are, is an undeserved gift from God to be used in service of others for the glory of Christ? Love is not arrogant. And this can surface in all kinds of ways, can it? I mean, it can show up in all kinds of different relationships. Just, just an example would be like pride of family even, as parents. There's a healthy kind of pride and appreciation for our children. But there can be there, there are parents whose, whose grown children turn out, quote, all right. There can, there can be, without even knowing it, they can be inclined to take credit uh, for that as if it's something that they are responsible for ultimately. In truth, God is sovereign over the salvation and over the sanctification of our children. He is under no obligation whatsoever to save them because of any merit on the part of the parents. None. And so when our children walk with the Lord, thank God. But it is ultimately, it's a gift of the grace of God and not due to our perfect parenting. Now we are, as parents, we're obligated to be faithful in raising our children to in, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but faithful parenting does not assure certain results. But there can be a way that pride kind of sneaks in there and, and manifests itself in arrogance. But love's not arrogant. Love's not arrogant. You know what it is? You think, take boasting and, and pride. It's grace that pulls the rug out, of under, out from under both of those, isn't it? It's grace. It's the gospel. It's the, it's the reminder we have as we come and eat and drink at the table in a moment. It, that's, that's, that's what deflates our swelled heads. Love, love isn't arrogant. Sixth, love doesn't force itself on others. 
Love doesn't force itself on others. It's not rude or it doesn't act unbecomingly, some of your translations may say. It doesn't needlessly offend. Listen to how one commentator says it. He says, the definitions of what is rude vary from culture to culture and from time to time, but at the heart is a disregard for the social customs that others have adopted. When one does not concern himself with the likes and dislikes of others, he shows a disrespect for them. Proper regard, on the other hand, indicates love for other people. And when you're living cross-culturally, you, you're aware of this. And I know folks, that, uh, the, some of you who have lived in other contexts, particularly as missionaries, and you're, you're, you're trying to understand that culture so as not to unnecessarily and needlessly offend people by being rude and just trampling over their customs and likes and dislikes and those kinds of things. But we, we don't have to just think in that context. This can happen within a family. You give no thought to those around you in terms of what their preferences and, and, and likes are, things that matter to them, and you just trample on those because all you care is about yourself and how you feel and what you want. This happens in churches. This happens in, in, with our own neighbors and our own community and our own culture. And so it's, it's, it's behind rudeness is the next tendency that we're going to see, the le- next thing loves us. It's, just, it's insisting on our own way. It, it, it's living with no thought of others, not taking into account things that are important to them. Instead of preferring others in love, we're just clinging to our own preferences. But love's not rude. Is Justin rude? Are you rude? Do you flagrantly, flagrantly or maybe even just flippantly, casually, ignore the preferences and the likes and the dislikes and the practices and the customs that are important to other people? I'm, I'm, of course, talking about matters that I'm not, where there's no spiritual or scriptural reason to, to ignore those customs. Obviously, we're not talking matters of morality here. Seventh, love isn't me first. It isn't me first. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't demand its own rights. It, in other words, it, being loving means putting the interest of others ahead of our own. I mean, in some ways, this is the fullest expression of Christian love, isn't it? And this is the heart of this, of, of, this, is the heart of this uh, section, these, these four verses, which is the heart of this chapter, which is the heart of this letter. I mean, this is what Christ's love is all about. He's the supreme example here. Philippians 2, 4-8, where we have this exhortation, let each one of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And how do we see what that looks like? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did not insist on his own way. He emptied himself. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not a strong suit for the Corinthians. They were thoroughly self-absorbed. Again, you remember their fellowship meals in chapter 11, and, 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 and you have some that are refusing to wait on others and eating and drinking before, so there's nothing left when the others come. I mean, that's just one of many examples we could look to. Now, again, the church in our day, though, is hardly different. Um, the word self is a big part of our vocabulary today, and, and even among professing Christians. We're told that our first priority is to love ourselves, K 
care for ourselves so that we can love others. And so we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus tells us this. That doesn't generally mean that we have to work at loving ourselves first, though. That's not his point. It simply means that we're to love our neighbor in the same ways that we naturally find ourselves loving others. That's what what it says. Love, Love doesn't insist on its own way. Justin does not insist on his own way. Do you consistently, listen, do you consistently make choices that place the benefit of others ahead of your own? Your own personal preferences, your own personal benefit. That's love. Is your neighbor's good your main concern? Even your enemies. Eight, love doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't fly off the handle. It's not irritable. It's not easily provoked, some of your translations say. Love is not touchy. Someone said. Doesn't have a short fuse, doesn't have a hair trigger. It's not easily upset or offended. I mean, being irritable, this is the opposite of God's MO here, isn't it? I mean, from the very beginning, God has shown himself to be very, very slow to become angry with his people. Even though they and we have given him all sorts of justification for being angry. I mean, God's own self-description, it captures this aspect of his character. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord declares about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who I am. I'm not irritable. Love is not irritable. Love is not Easily annoyed when things don't go our way. That people don't do what we want, when we want, how we want them to do it. I am not irritable. Watch, my kids are going to really get, look at me, give me the stink eye here. Um, I mean, do certain people have to walk on eggshells around you? Maybe you're not irritable in all of your relationships, but are there certain relationships where you find yourself to be quite irritable and and they, those people know they have to tiptoe around you all the time, like these landmines, and they don't know when one's going to go off. Do you sometimes use your temper to intimidate others or to punish people when they disappoint you? Are people afraid of how you respond to criticism or even just questions or disagreements? Clinging to this sort of, writ of, of habitual irritability is incredibly damaging in relationships. In a family, in a church, in the community. Love isn't irritable. Nine, love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It's not resentful. Or love keeps no record of wrong. That's a great translation because this is an accounting word. Love Love doesn't tally up the wrongs of other people and bear a grudge until every single one of them is paid for. Doesn't try to gain and keep the upper hand by reminding the other person of past offenses. That's the idea. It doesn't stew over the past record of other people's failures and faults and sins. It forgives. Love covers a multitude of sins. But the unloving person keeps track of them takes account, holds them in their memory bank. They, they, they make these mental deposits that one day are going to be withdrawals 
and, 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 when, and the, the, apart, the offending party's record is going to be retrieved and is going to be weaponized against them. That's, that's the unloving thing. Now, this, was, this, was, this was going on in Corinth. We know this because of all of their factions, all these divisions, this kind of party spirit in Corinth. Listen, in order to have a faction like they had, you have to be able to identify yourself over and against some other identifiable group and, and, and who are known, at least in your mind, by this track record of failure, of, of a poor track record on some issue. You have to be able to label them in that way. Keep, keep records of their wrongs and say, I'm not that. That's what's happening in Corinth. And when you keep score like that, resentment builds and divisions deepen. Paul says to this church, it's eaten up with this love is not resentful. He keeps no records of wrongs. Praise God that he's not resentful towards us. <laughs> Praise God that he forgives us and he remembers our sins no more. Now that doesn't mean that, that God, quote, you know, like we talk, forgives and forgets. And I understand the sentiment of that, but it's not that God has this divine amnesia where he cannot recall that we've ever messed up. No, but he he, what he's saying there is he doesn't hold that against us in terms of judgment. He can remember them, but he, because he loves us and because he's forgiven us, the, the recollection of those sins, it produces something entirely different in him. And listen, as we love others, of course we can recall things that have been done to us in the past, the ways others have sinned against us, just as they can remember the ways we've sinned against them. It's just that when, through love, when those sins are remembered, the effect is different and the result is different and the purpose is different. The remembering isn't there to, to nurse our hurts and to stir up anger and to, to brood thoughts of revenge and retaliation. No, it's there that we might revel in grace and the hope of restoration and reconciliation to draw us to Christ and His grace. Justin is not resentful. Are you resentful? You seem to have a photographic memory when it comes to offenses against you. One little, one little irritation, one little word spoken or not spoken, or a little roll of the eyes, and the entire folder, the entire file cabinet of previous offenses is emptied. Carefully annotated, documented dossier, every wrong comes to mind. This, this kind of mental bookkeeping, it only serves to fuel resent, resentment. It cannot facilitate true reconciliation. Number 10, love doesn't revel when others grovel. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And listen, what we, the things that we enjoy, things that we take pleasure in, that cause us to rejoice, those are, those are very revealing of our character, isn't it? I mean, that's, it's a great, those are great questions to ask when you're trying to get to know somebody. What are the things you like doing? What are the things that make you happy? What are the things you enjoy? What do you get excited about? Because that tells us a lot about a person. And, and so Paul tells us here that love, this is what love rejoices in. This is what it doesn't rejoice in. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And so, so that, the idea is love is never glad when others do wrong. I think that's the idea here. If someone, especially someone you don't like, falls into sin, love doesn't gloat. It grieves. 
Another person's failure, another person's mistake, another person's fall. It's not a source of secret pleasure to us. What are you saying? We grieve because God is grieved over their sin. If they repent, we rejoice. This is the, this is the other way. This is an, another way that the Corinthians demonstrated this lack of love. They not only, remember in chapters 5 and 6, they not only tolerated sexual sin among them, but they actually celebrated their tolerance of sexual sin, their permission of it. Probably, Paul probably has that kind of situation in mind. And so we have our own versions of this in our own day. This is what gossip is, isn't it? We, we, this is what fuels it. This is a common way to rejoice in wrongdoing in our day. We take pleasure in hearing and passing along this juicy bit of gossip. It's, 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 it, we, we take pleasure in this person's moral assassination. But I do not rejoice in wrongdoing. Do you? Do you secretly find pleasure in someone's failures? Do you get thrilled at the thought of being able to lecture someone over his or her shortcomings? Do you relish the opportunity to say, I told you so? 11. Love takes no pleasure, or love does take pleasure in the flowering of truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Love isn't to truth what oil is to water. No, 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 no. They're not adversaries. Love and truth are allies. They are, they are inseparable friends. So love that comes at the expense of truth isn't love at all. No, love rejoices in truth. Justin, do you rejoice in truth? Do you get excited when you hear about spiritual victories in other people's lives? Do you express joy over even small evidences of grace and growth in others, even those who've hurt you? This is the idea here. Are you willing to graciously confront a brother or sister in Christ because you deeply care for them? You care that that sin is actually destroying them. And there's these final four, and we're done. Twelve. Love puts up with anything. It bears all things. Love weathers the storm of many offenses, doesn't give up when the trouble is, is intense. 13, love trusts God always, believes all things. Love, love gives benefit of the doubt. Love doesn't immediately become suspicious or doubting of the other person's character or motives without reason, even if they've offended you or hurt you. The faith isn't in the, in the innate quality of that person. It's in God who is over that situation and over that person. So this, and, and this doesn't mean that love is gullible. That's not his point. But, but in doubtful situations, the loving person prefers being too generous in his or her conclusions rather than being suspicious and cynical. Love believes all things. When there's no irrefutable evidence, love chooses to believe the best. 14, love always looks to God for the best. Love hopes all things. It's not pessimistic or cynical. It, it, it doesn't expect the loved one to fail and fall. And when, and when there is failure, love refuses to take that as final. It, it, it exudes this godly sort of optimism. Not a naive optimism, but a godly sort. Not, not optimism, again, in that person, but in the God who is able to do anything. So it rests in the promises of God who is working all things together for good and for his pleasure. Even in the face of 
disappointment. Even in the face of repeated failure by the other person, love continues to hope for the best. And then last, love plods. It plods. It, it endures all things. This is a military word. It, it's, it's meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. It just holds. It holds the line. It has the idea of holding up under trial, perseverance despite enormous difficulties and ongoing difficulties. It hangs in there. Not in some passive, stoic sort of way, but in a, in a very positive, triumphant way. It sticks it out. Now, you, you take these four, these last four, and there's a lot of overlap with all these, honestly, but these last four in particular really tighten. It almost sounds like this last one, this sounds the same as love bears all things. But they're, they're, is, they're, is, they're close in meaning, but there's a slightly different nuance between bears and endures. Bearing relates to the intensity of the trial or the offense. No matter how difficult the situation is, uh, love bears all things. Enduring seems to relate not so much to the intensity of the trial, but to the duration of it. No matter how long this goes on, love endures all things. Love lasts. Love sticks it out. Justin bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you bear with difficult situations and people no matter how intense and difficult they become? And even in those situations and with those people, when there are these nagging doubts and questions, do you choose to believe the best because of God? And when the evidence becomes stronger and your doubts are increased and maybe they're even substantiated, your suspicions are, do you still at least choose to hope for the best because of God? And even when your hopes are repeatedly dashed time and time again, and do you still watch and wait and endure sometimes for a very, very long time? This is love. This is love. There is an epidemic among Christians today of bailing out in hard, in hard difficult times, isn't it? I, I just find this to be the case. In marriages, people run into disagreements in marriage, and they grow tired of the effort, and they bail. People grow tired of something that happens in the church, so they go find another church that's more to their own liking. Friendships are cast aside over little offenses that mount up. But love, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, Paul set a, a pretty high standard here, hasn't he, for love? An unbelievably high standard, a scary standard, a, an impossible standard for us here. And maybe your response to this is to kind of naively think, you know what, I'm just going to hop on the bike and I'm going to start pedaling up this mountain of love and I'm going to conquer it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the challenge. And it's a worthy challenge to undertake, isn't it? These are good things. It provides us with these clear guidelines of how to love one another. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. But just, I think, just like what happens when we read God's law, when you read the Ten Commandments, for instance, that, 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 that on the one hand, we're encouraged and we're guided in terms of how we ought to behave and how we ought to live. Uh, <coughs> but at the same time, we're burdened and we're rebuked by the law. 
We're to lay low. And, and, and even as we're striving to do the very things that it prescribes, we're, we're shown that we can't. And so we have this description of what love is like in 1 Corinthians 13, and I think it has a similar effect where, on the one hand, guided and encouraged in terms of how we ought to love others, but at the same time, we're increasingly rebuked by it the more closely we pay attention to it. And the result of all this is just as the moral law shows us our sin, shows us our need for a Savior, so Paul's description of love here serves in the end to reveal how unloving we truly are. And thus, our great lack, our great need, our great deficit. And so the challenge of love, which is positive, it also saddles us with this burden of our own lovelessness. It leaves us wondering, is there, is there any escape? Is there any hope for, of us actually becoming loving the way Paul describes here? Because I see it as Justin is patient kind. I do not envy, boast, am not arrogant or rude, and on and on. <laughs> no, I am actually not the things that love is. I actually don't do the, love, the things that love does. I am not, I, I am the things that love is not. I do the things that love doesn't do. I am, I am really not loving after all. I'm not loving at all. As a husband, as a father, as a church member, as a friend, as a, as a child, as a pastor. That's a, that's a helpful exercise to put our name in there and, and hold this text up to our lives by inserting our name here. But you know what another helpful exercise is to do? It, it's to do this. And, and it's to put Jesus' name in the place of love every place. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Now that reads pretty well. Jesus is everything that we are not. So the intended effect is really that our eyes would be turned to Christ. And when we do, we see that there's actually hope for us in the midst of all of this. There is. We're laid low, but we're raised up. But Paul's hope for the Corinthians was that they would be humbled, that they would be rebuked by these words about love. Why, though? Just to leave them groveling in the dust? No, but in order that they might look to the Lord Jesus who, who, and be comforted by His love and in the strength of that be enticed then to walk in love. And so my hope for us this morning is the exact same. It's that Paul's lofty descriptions of love here would serve as a guide for us in terms of how we would love one another. Yes, but, but only after it's driven us back to the Savior who by His perfect love uh, and, uh, has covered and accounted for all of our imperfect, flawed, inconsistent, pathetic love. And then and only then, in, the, in that freedom and the assurance of Christ enduring unalterable choice to love us, then we will be in the right place to take on the challenge, to take on the privilege to love. 
and to imitate our Savior. And so when you grasp how much you've been loved and with what kind of love you have been loved by the Lord, when you see what's been done for you in Jesus who loved you, who gave himself for you, then and only then will your heart begin to melt so that you can begin to love as he has loved. Love, the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's as we apprehend the enormity of his love for us that we say, Lord, help me, help me to love as you have loved. May, maybe our persistent lovelessness is it reveals and it shows to us it's sort of a mirror to show to us how little we actually dwell upon the loving kindness of God in Christ how little we understand it how far we've wandered from sight of the cross if you want to love like this this is where you start go back to the cross go back to Christ crucified See how much you are loved and you will begin to love in return. This is what we will remember as we come to the table together. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a hard passage because we are such loveless people, Lord. We really do want our own more than we want for anyone else. So forgive us, Father, for the sin of our of lovelessness. Forgive us for, for what we want so selfishly. We pray that you would train our minds to love the good as you have defined it, to rejoice in truth. We also pray that you would train our hearts to desire, not enviously, but to earnestly desire to love and serve those around us, that we would be shaped into conformity with your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. So help us to revel in his love. In this demonstration of love, Christ died for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.